Good morning, Hope Church, on this fine Dunedin morning. Uh, Well, if you hadn't guessed, we're back into our series on Genesis this morning, Um, uh, and I have the great privilege of uh, preaching from Genesis 9. I wanted to preface the sermon this morning with uh, two things. Firstly, there are a lot of big things in Genesis 9, a lot of very deep things in Genesis 9. I say that because uh, if it feels like this morning like we're sort of breezing past or rushing through Genesis 9 and, and, and maybe missing some deeper elements, that's because that's exactly what's going on. Uh, we're going to go through the sermon and then I'm, we're going to talk about sort of one or two of the bigger things that I think may be more relevant for us this morning. So if that happens, that's, that's what's going on. Uh, secondly, uh, there are a lot of big things in Genesis 1 to 11 and Genesis 9 is big picture stuff. So while there are a lot of sort of individual practicalities we could think of, uh, we're not going to go into those in too much detail this morning because Genesis 9, Genesis 1 to 11, Genesis itself is big picture sort of stuff. So uh, that's what I've prefaced it with. Uh, We're looking at big things. We need a big God to help. So let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for the depth and richness of your word. We pray this morning that as we look at your word, you would teach us by your wisdom, by your Holy Spirit. Convict us by your word and teach us and help it to change us as we live in your world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you weren't familiar with the Bible... Uh, but you'd been following along with us in the book of Genesis, you might be forgiven for thinking that we were already coming to its conclusion. If you have a think about what we've seen, God created the world, and it was good. He created mankind, male and female, and it was very good. But then humanity sinned against God by trying to elevate themselves to be like God and ignoring his command. We saw that the essence of sin is not just sinful acts, but is ultimately a rejection of God. Saying, I don't want God to be God, I want to be my own God and do what I want. But we also saw where that ended up. We saw a series of events that showed just how fast sin spread, beginning with murder in chapter 4, right up until chapter 6, verse 5, when every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And finally, we saw just how serious sin was. Since God, in consequence of the severity of sin, and because he is a holy and a just God, wiped out almost every living creature on the face of the earth by means of a great flood. Zishan called that the solemnity of judgment. That's how serious sin is. It needed eradicating. God can't just sweep sin under the carpet. God can't allow sin to persist. But at the end of chapter 8, where we finished a couple of weeks ago, the flood is over. And Noah, who walked faithfully with God, makes a sacrifice in honour of God, and God promises that he'll never destroy all the living creatures again. So if this was a fairy tale, at this point you might be expecting, and they all lived happily ever after. And the rest is just one big long epilogue. But this is not a fairy tale. This is reality. This is history. 
And while our passage this morning starts with blessing, and it has a lot of talk about rainbows, we see very quickly that all is not right with the world. So this morning we'll be looking at our passage in three sections. Firstly, verses 1 to 7, a new creation. Secondly, verses 8 to 17, a new covenant. But thirdly, verses 18 to 29, the same old story. A new creation, a new covenant, but the same old story. So verses 1 to 7, a new creation. Uh, Now this is not literally a new creation, but the parallels with Genesis 1 are very clear. Here God is speaking to Noah and his family, but in Genesis 1 he says similar things to Adam and Eve. God begins by blessing them both. He gives clear instruction to be fruitful and increase in number. They're both given the provision of food. However, if you're comparing them, that's where the similarity ends. And it's the differences that tell us that something isn't quite right. If you needed nothing else, Genesis 1 ends with the phrase, and it was very good. And there's no such ending here in chapter 9. But more than that, did you notice the difference in the relationship of humanity to creation? In Genesis 1, Adam and Eve were told to rule over creation. That is not a harsh rule, but a benevolent stewardship of creation. Uh, But in chapter 9, we're told, verse 2, the fear and dread of you, that's humanity, the fear and dread of humanity will fall on all the creatures of the world. The provision of food allowed in Genesis 1, now in Genesis 9, verse 3, includes everything that lives and moves about, meaning that they can kill and eat animals. You see, it's a new creation. It's a new beginning. But things are not like they were before. There is fear and dread, and there is death. God gives a single prohibition to his provision of food, much like the single fruit that Adam and Eve were told not to eat in the garden. The restriction here, verse 4, is that they must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. There is to be a reverence of God's creation. And this concept carries on throughout Scripture. However, no matter the reverence animal life should receive, it's even more so with that of human life, because humans were made in the image of God. Even the life of a human must not be taken. And I want you to notice uh, one very key thing in these verses, verse 5. For the killing of a human, God says, I will surely demand an accounting. This is interesting for two reasons. Firstly, God has already said, and he's about to say again, that he will never again wipe out the earth by flood and judgment. So how is this accounting going to take place? We'll think about that a little bit later on. But secondly, why is this command even needed? Haven't we just wiped out all the ungodly people? Surely this won't be a problem anymore. But God knows that sin is persistent. This is the new creation, but things seem to be not. 
very good. So verses 8 to 17, a new covenant. Uh, A covenant is basically just an agreement between two or more parties. Uh, Biblical covenants, and there are a number of them through the Bible, are always between God and some aspect of his creation. God's covenant with Noah is different from the others found in the Bible in that it is to be enjoyed by everyone for all time. There's a universal aspect to it. Have a look with me if you've got your Bibles open from verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature who came with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. And continuing at the end of verse 12, this is a covenant for all generations to come. This covenant is for all living beings for all time, or until time ends. And what is the covenant? Verse 11, never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood, a flood to destroy the earth. God promises not to wipe out the earth by flood because of sin again. God even provides a wonderful sign as a reminder of the covenant. What is it? This is something, we should get the Sunday school children back down here. They should be able to tell us. Verse 13, God has set his rainbow in the clouds to remind us that God will never do that again. Uh, Now, I'm not going to labor this part of the passage. It's probably the most well-known of this chapter. We all know and love to look at the rainbow, which is very pretty. And we are thankful that God will not bring a flood again. We should always see the rainbow and remember this with thankfulness. It is a great reminder of God's mercy. But I want to ask a question that sometimes we might forget when we think about these verses. Why is the covenant necessary? Why does God promise not to destroy with a flood ever again? Because the reasons why God brought the flood in the first place haven't gone away. The sin that has been the problem since the Garden of Eden, even after wiping out almost all the creatures on earth with only Noah and his family, those most righteous remaining, even after all that, sin is persistent and I want us to remember this because I think this is the key and we'll be thinking about this more but firstly the next section shows the reality of this very fact we've seen a new creation we've had a new covenant but now we see it's still the same old story verses 18 to 29 in this fairly awkward story Surrounding Noah and his sons, we see Noah pervert the gift of God's creation by getting drunk, getting nude, and falling unconscious. And sometimes you wonder why some things were recorded in the Bible. (laughs) They don't paint a flattering picture of anyone, do they? And there are some very confusing things said here. But let's have a look at the whole picture together from verse 18. 
The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Keep that in mind. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Keep those verses in mind as well. We'll come to this in a bit. But from verse 20, we see, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some, it seems quite a lot, of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Ham, notice again, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked backward, uh, walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. Well, when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Ham. Oh. No, hang on, he doesn't. Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem, may Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory, may Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. Uh, Now, much of this encounter is familiar to us. It might raise other questions, but it's this very confusing aspect of these verses that I'd like to focus on because it might also be the most illuminating at the same time. That is, why does Noah curse Canaan? We can see now that sin has persisted. Noah has done wrong, followed immediately by Ham, but the text is clear that it's Ham who brings further shame on Noah, So why, in verse 25, is Canaan to be cursed? Uh, Unfortunately, that's easier asked than it is answered. Uh, Every commentator I read comes to the same conclusion, that no commentator has come to a particular conclusion. (laughs) Very helpful. But there are a few things worth noting. Uh, Firstly, and follow uh, follow with me on this, We should note that while it is the name of Canaan in the curse, verse 25, he is set to be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. But the brothers in question aren't Canaan's brothers, they're Ham's brothers. Have a look at verses 26 to 27. May Canaan be the slave of Shem, that's Ham's brother. May Canaan be the slave of Japheth, Ham's brother again. So the curse is on Ham in one sense. This is why the writer is so determined to remind us that Ham is the father of Canaan. So the curse is in his direction, but it's felt specifically through his youngest son, Canaan. Uh, Now maybe that reflects the fact that Ham, verse 24, was Noah's youngest son. So it's, it's sort of Ham that's cursed, but it's felt through Canaan, his son. Secondly, while we may never get to the bottom of why Noah felt that this was necessary, the result of the curse is very revealing because it's played out in history. Uh, And you, you can just see God's invisible hand working even through the sinful acts of people. 
Uh, Many of you familiar with the Old Testament will remember that it's the Canaanites that Israel, that's Shem's descendants, drive out of their land. And in, say, Judges chapter 1 verse 30, for example, the Canaanites do end up being Israel's slaves. So the curse is fulfilled. But why is that important? Well, I told you to remember verses 18 to 19. These verses frame, the, the 18 and 19 frame these verses for who they're relevant for. Verse 18, the sons of Noah were Shem, Ham and Japheth, with a reminder that Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, verse 19. From them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. In other words, what is about to be told and what we've just seen isn't just relevant for a small family that's just come in from a boat ride. It affects the whole of humanity that follows. You see, sin is persistent through rain or shine, you might say. These verses end saying, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and then he died. Sin is still a part of this world and will continue to be so. Death, the consequence of sin, is still a part of this world and it will continue to be so. There are so many things we could take from Genesis 9. We could take the thread of the animal's lifeblood and we could follow that thread through the Old Testament sacrificial system and ultimately find uh, that it ends in the sacrifice of Jesus. We could take the thread of water and follow that through Scripture as an element of both destruction but also cleansing, following through to baptism of water and ultimately in spirit through Jesus. There are any number of threads to follow. But if it wasn't obvious, one of the key threads I want you to remember this morning is sin. Now, I know it's the 21st century. People will tell me not to talk about something so negative and dreary. Talk about something more uplifting, Tim. Don't talk about the sin thing all the time. It's depressing. Is it? Really? I wonder if one of the reasons you mainly only hear Christians talking about sin or the evil within us is because, and I truly believe this, Christians are the only people in the world who can talk about sin and not have it end in depression because of the thread. You follow the thread of the problem of sin through Scripture and you ultimately get to the one who defeats it. Jesus. But here's the thing. If there was no such thing as sin, there'd be no need for Jesus to have come in the first place. So an understanding of the reality of our sin is vital. We must understand it in order to understand why Jesus came. 
even more than this, the deeper our understanding of our own sin, the deeper our understanding of the grace of God in sending his son to die for that sin. I think there's a misconception uh, that a, a qualification to be a Christian is to be a good person. That basically Christians just think of themselves as a bit better than other people. And that's why we get to go to heaven. But friends, a basic Christian belief is exactly the opposite. If you were here last week, uh, you would have uh, heard Stu preach about uh, the day of Pentecost and the movements of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Does anyone remember what the first movement of the Holy Spirit was? The conviction of sin. You can actually say that one of the only qualifications to be a Christian is to acknowledge that we are not good. I could go on and on about this, as you may have already noticed. But as we conclude this morning, I want you to understand two things and to hold on to them. Firstly, and no prizes for guessing what it is, Sin is persistent. There's probably a danger in talking about sin too much, to the exclusion of all else, especially God's grace, but I don't think that's a danger we're guilty of in the 21st century. More likely is we're going to ignore it, or we'll downplay it somehow as not really that serious. Friends, sin is serious. God hates sin. He wiped out nearly the whole earth because of sin, but still it persists. And he will demand an accounting. All things go in a circle, and a belief that is becoming more popular again is for a Christian to think that now they are a Christian, uh, now that they have the Holy Spirit, sin's not really a problem anymore. I've, uh, I've heard of many people saying, well, I've conquered this particular sin, or I'll, I won't be tempted in that way. But do you remember the description of sin that God gave Cain in chapter 4? Sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to master you. But you must rule over it. But Cain couldn't rule over it. Even the best of us, as we saw with Noah can't do this without the help of God. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, the things I hate, that sin, these are the things I keep on doing. Now I'm not saying that we don't fight against sin and just give it up as inevitable. Again, Stu mentioned last week that another work of the Holy Spirit is our sanctification, that is changing to be more like Christ and resisting the sin within I'm not saying don't fight it. I'm saying don't make it less than it truly is. Don't belittle it or underestimate it. Don't make the world's mistake of thinking we can solve the world's problems with better education. Apparently, we're better educated than we've ever been, and I don't see the problem of sin going away. Don't make the mistake of thinking we can solve the world's problems through a a hard focus on social reform 
or by insisting on tolerance to oppressed minorities, or by trying really hard. There's nothing wrong with these things. Of course there isn't, but they're not going to solve the problem. Sin is persistent. But secondly, God's mercy is more. Do you remember the words of that song? Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Aren't those beautiful words? We're about to sing another song that sings of God being mighty to save. No matter the power and the persistence of sin, it is nothing compared to the grace of God that we have through Jesus. In His grace... As we've seen today, he has promised not to wipe out the earth with a great flood ever again. But the problem and the consequences of sin still persist, and they demand an accounting. Well, now Jesus has taken the punishment for sin that we deserved. And one day those consequences will all be gone. No more fear and dread. No more death. When the Lord returns, he will gather up those who have faithfully turned to him in repentance of sin. Remember how Paul finished after acknowledging the persistence of his own sin. Romans seven twenty four. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's not always easy for us to admit the sin within. But Lord, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict us of it, the truth of it, the reality of it, the persistence of it. Because the more we understand our own sin, the greater we see the grace that you have given us through your son's death on the cross. Help us now in light of that to be a holy nation, to be a light to the world, to share the glories of that grace in the face of that truth. In Jesus' name we pray and for his eternal glory. Amen.